Welcome to the Wealth Easy Show. We talk all things wealth, health, and real estate. I'm your host, John Durbano. Today is a really special day because is it is my inaugural podcast, and I had to to bring on someone really special today. And I thought, you know, who am I going to bring on that's going to make this show really great? And there's a couple of people that came to mind, but there's one person that really stood out. He's been a, a friend to me for over 30 years. He's uh, He's an author, a motivational public speaker, an advisor. He's shared the stage with the likes of Tony Robbins speaking for The Power Within, Presidents Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama. He's also shared the stage with iconic figures including Oprah Winfrey, Ellen DeGeneres, Sir Richard Branson, Deepak Chopra, and Robin Sharma. He designs certificate learning programs on the subject of wealth management and marketing and selling financial services for York University's Schulich School of Business. He served as the president of Canada's longest-running private real estate group, Rain, from 2008 to 2019. He's authored several books, including Make Your Move, Life Rich Real Estate, Wealth Mastery, The Great Financial Life, The Sport of Money, and his latest book, Richer. He is the only Canadian to have been gifted three NBA championship rings. He is my longtime friend, Richard Dolan. Richard, buddy, thank you for being here. Man, I got goosebumps for you, buddy. I mean, it's not every day you get goosebumps at a podcast, at a video like this, but I'm so happy for you. I know that this is just yet another part of your foundation and and building your new empire uh, on a new journey. Uh, Congratulations. I I will admit that when I heard you say out loud, you thought of a couple of people for the inaugural session. I I know you're just saying that for entertainment purposes. There's only one person you thought of. That was me. One person really stood out to really make this special. Congratulations, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, Three NBA championship rings. Explain, how did you get gifted three NBA championship rings? Dude, I stole them. <laughs> I stole them and ran, man. That's what I did. I mean, think think about how cool that is when you when you talk about NBA even to begin with. I mean, as a Torontonian born and raised here, uh, my father's Ukrainian, my mother is from Brazil. I mean, I'm very lucky to to call Toronto my birth home. And and for all those reasons, I mean, gosh, we we're not a we weren't a city and nor a country that was synonymously known for basketball. We were a hockey nation. Uh, so for for being a recipient of an NBA championship ring was during my time as a special advisor to Jawan Howard who, if you recall, was one of the founders of the Fab Five. I mean, that was the guy who got the first $100 million contract. Uh, That was even before Michael Jordan, his dear friend, got his. Uh, They did away with the short shorts and the big long tube socks. Your your general outfit most summers uh, in Italy. (laughs) Most most summers in Italy. (laughs) Can't wear that here. Now now, now folks have got to run over a squirrel just to get the image of John Durbano in short shorts and long tube socks. But I mean, mean, Juwan Howard reinvented the culture of basketball. So as an advisor to him during the Miami Heat, it it was the time in which LeBron James just joined the Miami Heat. So I was with them during their loss of the Mavericks, returned the following year as a special advisor, and then they won two championships back to back. So I got two championship rings gifted to me by Juwan during those that that run. So that was the first two. Uh, that was the first two. The third came at the bubble, the bubble ring. It was uh, 2020. It was the big pandemic in the bubble, and it was from my work with Mike Mancius, the chief performance officer uh, for LeBron James. So I got uh, I got that ring as well. That's amazing. That's so cool. That's amazing. I know you and I, we kind of, we've been in this business a very long time. I know you started your career in 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were 18 years old. And I, know. I started in 2001. 
What yeah. made what made you get into the business? I know you started in the investment business, and I you, you did some work. You worked for Richard Charlton too. Yeah. I mean, that guy's an iconic that figure. He's a legend. Yeah. I mean, they they call him a T Rex, not just because he's old, but he's scary. Uh, I mean, he's a monster. He really is. A lot of love for that man and all that he's done for me. But I mean, for for me, um, I watched a movie which was Wall Street. And in watching Wall Street, which was the great Oliver Stone film that featured the likes of Michael Douglas opposite to Charlie Sheen and his father, uh, the great Martin Sheen, I mean, that movie completely left me empowered because I never had seen a movie about money before, let alone the stock market and, and how that entire system really worked. So, you know, being young and foolish, but hungry and motivated, I did what any other teenager would do, you know, to learn more. At that time and era, I jumped on a bus and went to the mall and bought a book with the only 10 bucks I had in my pocket on how to buy stocks. That was the title of the book. And, and I'm here to profess that I read absolutely none of the book because I fell in love with the idea of being in that space. So I held that book like it was, it was the Bible of my future for what it represented, but I never learned much from it. So uh, it just so happened that that's just the way the universe unfolds for you, where uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who needed to renew her health card of some kind. We ended up in a government building and I stumbled into an unemployment office. And, and in Canada, we have what would be called unemployment offices with job offers on boards at the time. There were boards, if you recall. I'm dating myself now for those who are listening. And uh, I saw on the board, it just of the hundreds John, of the hundreds of cards, index cards, looking for bricklayers and carpenters and, and short plumbers and, and, I mean, uh, tool and die experts, there's this one card that called to me and it was looking for a cold caller. And it was at 40 King Street West, 32nd floor. And I thought, I don't know what a cold caller is, but I know 40 King Street West. And it was the epicenter of Bay Street, our financial district. And so with that being said, I, uh, I took the card, which you don't do. I called the guy, which I did get done. And, and I just said yes to the immediate response was, uh, when can you start? So I was a cold caller. I, I started off as a cold call cowboy man, making 300 cold calls a day every day. That was my job. Uh, going through uh, what we called the red book, which was business owners and entrepreneurs, sole proprietors in the area. And I had this pitch down pat where I was simply getting through 300 dials a day. And it was all a matter of math. I knew that for every eight no's, I got a yes. All right, send me something. And I would rush off to fax something off to the person of interest. So it, it was um, it was a humble start, which I celebrate today, but it was a grind back then. But I got to admit, man, there was nothing better than being in the place that looked like Wall Street. It, it was it was what Martin Sheen talked about. It was what Gordon Gekko ran. And, and I know how that movie went and I know how it went wrong. And that's not the part that I did learn. Uh, what I took away from it, it was that that was the world I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be in the money world. And that's all I knew. And I didn't come from the Lucky Sperm Club. And, and I wasn't part of the kosher Nostra. Uh, so, I mean, there, there was no... Uh, there was no DNA in me and I wasn't a part of any clique or, or culture or family name that would get me there. So I knew the only way to be there was to manufacture being there. And, and I just hauled ass and, and made sure that I was in the world I felt so drawn to. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel the investment advice back then has changed to the advice that people are getting from banks and institutions today? Yeah, I, I think the world that I was born in, uh, which was preceded by the world that you were born in, uh, was that you're talking about proximity and prestige. I mean, it was about who you know, and it was about who they then knew and the opportunities they had access to. 
and, and you didn't have the internet. There was no book that was published back then on the best stocks to buy or the best mutual funds to invest in. You, you needed to know somebody. And in order to know somebody, you needed to be somebody. And oftentimes in that world, it was quite cliquey that money drew out money. So it was no wonder why people who had money made more. And it was no wonder why those who had lots made plenty because it was proximity equals power and generated possibility. So I, I cracked the code, I snuck through the fence. That's really all that happened. And, and I didn't belong in that world. I gotta be really honest to your listeners, your followers, and those who are faithful, who, who love what you do, by the way, John, and, and they're all championing you, man. Um, the world needs to wake up and shift their relationship to money. Uh, and I know it starts with them listening to you. Um, but with that being said, I snuck in. I, I truly, I didn't break in, but I snuck in. And when I got discovered, they're like, hey, what, what, what's your last name? They didn't ask what I did, what I knew, how passionate I was about helping people. They just were like, who are you? So it's evolved because what we grew uh, way more accustomed to was access to information. That was the great annihilator and the, and the leveler of that field. It wasn't no longer about having the right people and knowing the right place and being the right level of proximity. It was now about who, who had the most accurate information and how can I leverage that insight and, and how do I mobilize money to take advantage of it? So it was nice to watch the evolution of that industry. It was nice to see that we moved away from the dial phones to the punch pads to the automated dials. We saw technology grow, boom, and of course evolve. We saw trading systems evolve. I remember the time of running down the hallway with a ticket in hand to get it punched before the closing bell. Um, those days are all done. I mean, what we're now dealing with uh, rather than in terms of days, weeks, and months, and even years, we're talking about nanoseconds, seconds, maybe minutes. Uh, so there's a huge compression of insighted information. So I think how we've evolved is just simply information. The way we access it and the way all can as well and take advantage of that has really allowed the masses to now eat with the classes to sort of quote the late Sam Walton, right? When he said, if you want to create wealth, you know, when you focus on the classes, you eat with the masses, but when you focus on the masses, you eat with the classes. I, th I think that's the, that was the privilege. So that was a turning point, I think, in our industry. You mentioned respect for money. I know we, we had this discussion at lunch and talking about someone's investor DNA and half the people, they don't even know what they are invested in today. I've seen your videos and, and, and on, on, on Instagram and you often talk about proper planning. I'm a big believer in mindful money management and having a respect for that money. Can you talk to me more about when, when you talk about proper planning, explain what it is that you're explaining to uh, people about the relationship with money? You know, I think to answer that question respectfully, you've got to appreciate just who I am and how I was built. So I, I, was, I didn't come out to shoot this way. I mean, I really wasn't. I was groomed. I was built. I was engineered. I was crafted. And, and after working with the likes of a Tony Robbins and, and the likes of others that you've cited, one, one man in particular really helped me devise who I've become, and that's Warner Earhart, who was one of the greatest minds on modern day thinking, an urban philosopher, if it were, on our, existen our existential uh, philosophy of life. And, and one of the things I've learned in learning under him was just understanding distinction. Like, what's the definition of proper, or what, what, how do you define planning? So rather than just getting into a really great, long-winded, complex, and intellectually charged answer, it's like, well, what does it mean? Let's, let's look up in Oxford, what is the definition of this term and that term? 
So, so to me, to understand proper planning, the first question I have to ask myself is, well, what am I planning for? Because most people are planning for a future that's not yet invented nor created. It's hoped for, wished for, maybe even aspire to, but it's not yet realized. And therein lies the conundrum existentially that people have. Because in the absence of a plan for the future, most people only but experience what comes next as a template from the past. So if you don't plan for anything, much of whatever has already happened happens yet again. That's why people get in ruts. That's why people, in fact, feel like they're averaging down, spiraling out of control, not getting ahead, just seemingly getting by. And it all comes down to the fact that we've all just perfected one act over three million years. In our brains, this 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 piece of incredible equipment is only perfected, John. You know this one thing, and that's that's survive. Over three million years, not be happy, not be successful. Our brains over three million years did not perfect the act of making money, being successful, being an entrepreneur, an amazing sound engineer, an awesome marketer, or a great financial thinker. It's just stay alive. Don't get eaten. Don't be killed. Live to see another day. And for what purpose is really to procreate. That's what our biological driving systems are all built for. So without making this an existential conversation uh, as to what's then the purpose of our existence, the purpose then of understanding proper planning is to really shift your relationship to what you then call your financial life. So when people say, I just want to make more money. Well, if you had all the money in the world, would that make you happy? Well, no, not really, because I'd have new problems. Well, if you had all the wealth in the world, would that make you happy? And they say, well, yeah, it would. It'd solve a lot of problems. But well, if you had more worth, would that make you happy? And all of a sudden, people ask the question, well, what's worth then? So I think in order for us to understand proper planning, we need to understand properly what we're planning with. So if you're understanding that your financial life is defined as uh, three components, money, wealth, and worth, and those three items are like sitting on a scoreboard and you're gonna be at different stages in your life and different states in your life, you're gonna want more of that stuff over time. So you and I can, we talked about this because we've known each other for so damn long, what most of your listeners don't understand is uh, that you're a reigning champion Speedo model. Uh, back, in our, back in our Gold's Gym days, folks, you heard it from me first, Gold's Gym days. I used to watch John uh, work out in a, in a gym on Eglinton, a legendary facility, and he would strut around in his tank top and cut out sweat top. I mean, he was a stud, still is. Uh, but now they got a new visual on the table here, and move on. But when you think about your great financial life, different stage, different state when we were that young we knew what was important to us right looking good feeling great attracting the others and hopefully hopefully being happier with what we've gotten in our lives that was the motivation of that time but as we grew older our motivations shifted to wanting to make money wanting to drive a nice car wanting to get a house wanting to maybe fall in love start a family and on it goes different state different stage different outcome so our financial lives have these three components, these three what I call dimensions of value. Money, which is a currency, your ability to buy things even on credit and or with cash in hand. The next is wealth, which is the shiny stuff, really nice stuff like a nice watch or a nice car, uh, whether it's a jet or a helicopter, or if you're really uh, feeling a bit behind the eight ball and you still don't have a good self-confidence boost, you buy two helicopters, like that kind of thing. Um, a little bit of jab, but that might dear friend. Um, or, or then you've got worth, and worth is defined by the power of choice and the freedom to choose. So what I've noticed is that the older people get, the less they need and or want money and wealth, but they want more worth. Time with my kids, time with my grandkids, the power not to work or to travel without a laptop. 
right? Worth. So what we know is that there's an arc. And that arc is something that we have to respect through the entire existence of our relationship to money. So having a great financial life is having a powerful relationship with each one of those dimensions of how we measure what we've got, money, wealth, and worth. So the idea uh, in proper planning is to say, if I'm going to properly plan a great financial life, how do I define it? And here's what I want your listeners to take note of. A great financial life is one that is whole, it's complete, with nothing missing, and it's performing. If it's whole and complete and performing, then you're rocking. But if there's something about it that's not whole and it's not complete, like things are missing, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, soon, uh, whether it's not performing as in I'm not protected, I'm not preserving, or I'm not reserving the right for purchase power, et cetera, then, then there's something to do. There's, there's work to be done. And, and you do that by, by learning more. So uh, that's what proper planning is to me, is understanding first what are we really properly planning for. That's an excellent point because I feel some people, they may have the money, they want the wealth, but they don't know their worth. And I feel, and I can say this because I came from the traditional advisor and you were there too, the traditional advisor approach to creating wealth is about returns. And I find that a traditional advisor today is more about asset gathering and what I can, what kind of return I can get you. And they're not really teaching people the truth about money and they're not teaching them their worth. And I feel that a lot of people, they're really confused and they don't know who to turn to today because there's so much bad information out there. And I feel that the traditional way is, is the advice. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw the banks out there. Banks give advice that benefit them, not you. And I feel that you and I are both in the same world where we really want to empower people in teaching them that whole proper planning stage. Get the money, create the wealth, and also know your worth. And most people, they don't even know what their worth is. They don't even know where to start. So where, where would you tell someone who's just starting out, how do they get started in even understanding what their worth is? You know, what's amazing is that I think we're in an era of, uh, of a great awakening, right? A great awakening. And what gave rise to that is this confidence crisis that the entire world continues to wrestle with. I mean, just think that a few years ago, we wrestled with this global pandemic, where even yet to this day, with all the resources, Johnny, with all the great thinkers, with all the great smarts we've got, we still don't know where it came from. And if we don't know what the source of that outbreak was, how can we ever prevent it from happening again? And, and we're supposed to be a, an evolved species and we can't even figure that out. Now, I know there's a lot of people who might say a lot of different things. There's a conspiracy theory and a lot of other wonderful underbelly type of thinking and thoughts that go with it. But ultimately, in the end, this great awakening is being fueled by the young. I mean, I've got a young son, you've got a young boy. I mean, our boys can teach us a few things today more than ever before. When we were their age, we were just smart-assed, right? We were undisciplined and we were just testing the limits. You get what I'm saying. But when my son speaks, I got to be honest, I take note. Oh man, my knee's hurting right now. My son will come back and says, dad, that's because your, your insulin levels are up. You're spiking them too often and your sugar intake's probably high. And as a result, that causes inflammation. And given the fact that you and Johnny hang out, smoke a lot of cigars and have tequila, yo, dad, you got to pipe that down a little bit. This guy's 16 years old and telling me what to do. And it's not because he's being a little prick about it, but because he's being quite precise with it. And the access to information. Bingo. That was the 
catalyst for the great awakening is the access to information. So what's become quite clear to me is as you talk about these things, look, let's be very frank and I got to make a submission uh, in the form of an admission. I'm not a financial advisor and nor was I ever registered as one. What, what gave me a great advantage and a great education was I worked for advisors and planners who were asset gatherers. And what they did was these guys, quite frankly, were very smart, but not socially equipped. I was. And so therefore, I learned to weaponize my abilities to go out there and rally relationships that gathered assets. So seven and a half billion dollars later, for various advisors and various planners and various firms and funds, I was able to say, hey, I've learned something out of thousands of conversations, Johnny, which you and I have already begun to decompress on, where it's like something's still missing. There's a great disconnect between talking to people about their financial dreams and aspirations and all of a sudden, the person who ends up being endowed with them to go put those dollars to work, there's a disconnect. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the old great book where uh, advisor and client and investor walking through the streets of Wall Street, heading down towards the Mercantile Exchange. If you're familiar with the geography, as you walk down the street, you head towards the Hudson River and client turns to his advisor and says, wow, where are all these magnificent yachts come from? He goes, well, those are all the brokers and all the advisors. Where are the yachts at? Where the, and he where says, the, where's, where's the client's yachts? Yeah, where's the client's nice. yachts? And so that's that was for that, me a that's real an old book. That's from like from the that's from like the thirties. That's a, it's an old book, but but it but it's still a timeless testament to why it's so important to understand. And here it comes, and I'll turn this back over to you. Is that capital has become conscious? Capital has become conscious. People are now a little bit smarter than before. Today, more now than ever before, you've got not one but three generations sitting down and saying, "What do we do with all this wealth, money, house, and net worth?" You've got grandparents, parents, and the kids, like my son, saying, what do we do? And you know who's speaking up and speaking loudly? The young, because they are smart. They're equipped. They've got the, as the Italians would say, the Corleones, to speak their mind and say it real. And, and they and they, they are not subject to any agenda. And in fact, they're quite allergic to an agenda. So they'll say it straight. And so I, I'm really fascinated to see what's gonna happen for guys like you and I, who are out there to just disrupt the mainstream traditional conversation about money, wealth, and worth. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun to see where this industry heads out uh, over the next 10 years as $60 trillion, that's with a T, transfers hands in the next foreseeable eight years. Not, not 80, not 100, in our lifetime within this decade, we're gonna see $60 trillion transfer hands. That's a major tsunami that's gonna actually shift a lot of the trends and, and, and the landscape. Well, that's a really good point you make because I often talk about the Rockefellers, the difference between the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. And you, you want to talk about generational wealth transfers. The, the, difference, the, 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 the difference between what the Rockefellers did is they educated the, their children and their grandchildren, A, on the value of money. They knew their worth. But they also set up trusts and they bought life insurance policies on all of the beneficiaries of that trust where every person that was a beneficiary, they borrowed money out of the trust, it all got replaced on death by the life insurance policy. Where the Vanderbilts, it only lasted a few generations because they squandered their wealth. They, they had no concept of money, they didn't respect money, 
and they were buying luxury mansions and homes and they're broke. I mean, Anderson Cooper was the last remaining van. Well, Gloria Vanderbilt was the last one. And Anderson Cooper says, I don't believe in an inheritance. I'm going to create my, my own. And she died with like less than a thousand bucks. So there's a really big example of the advice that some families are, are giving. And I know that there are some families that they actually have a constitution for the family and they go over and they talk, talk about money. I talk about money all the time with my son, not because I'm trying to brag or say, hey, look what I have. I need him to understand the value of a dollar. Every time my son gets any money for birthday, Christmas, it doesn't matter. I say, you have to save 50% and you get to spend the other 50. Dad, why do I got to save? Trust me, you're going to learn the value of a dollar when you learn how to put money away. Mm. And you see, just to riff off you for a moment, because what you're doing is you're, you're, you're producing behaviors at a young age that's going to defy the gravity of our origination. More on that later. So to your Vanderbilt and Rothschild reference, what I would suggest is this, is that the Rothschild didn't just believe in planning, they also understood philosophy. When you just stick to planning, I would assert that you're only going to be focused on what we have now come to call the intergenerational wealth transference. But, 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 but that's not any different from someone winning a lottery for $10 million, and that becomes a generational phenomenon, a wealth-shifting phenomenon. But because that's a kind of intergenerational wealth transfer, as in it came from somewhere and it came back to me, it's not as a Rothschild's thought. It has to become multi-generational. This isn't yours. This is yours for now. And who it belongs to is the next two, three generations. They thought in terms of hundreds of years, just like Robert De Niro, He's not buying up continually parts of New York City in Tribeca, lower Manhattan, because he wants to get wealthy. He's setting up his kids and his kids' kids and his kids' 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 lives by having multi-generational wealth. And I think that's the big part of what you're doing and what I love so much. And I always will sign up for your podcast and what you do because at the end of the day, disrupting the traditional is really shifting the predictable. And it's not just about the planning, it's also about the philosophy. So that's what I want to make sure I said clearly. Thank you. Because yeah. you, you, this show is also about real estate. And mm. you know, you, you were the president of one of the Canada's largest um, real estate networks yeah. for, for many years. So I know there's a lot of insight. And you talk about you know, Robert De Niro is now buying up a lot of real estate. There are, and I'm in the, also in the mortgage business, there are people in their 20s and 30s they cannot have a down payment on a home because of the price of real estate today. And I'm finding a lot of parents having to gift money to their children and pulling out from their retirement just so that their children can get their first home. Mm -hmm. Talk to me for a bit, my listeners, about where you see the real estate market going today because it's it's definitely not where it, where it has been in the last you know, four or five years, it's, it's the, the playing field in the landscape and real estate has drastically changed. And people, people have to say for the next 10, 15 years, they got to live with their parents. They can't even get into a home. Mm. You know, it's, that's a really great insight. And especially as a dad, we both, uh, share, um, 
you know, the same experience of being fathers to sons who are at that stage and age in their life where they're thinking about the future, wondering what they're going to do, thinking on how they're going to do it. And, and, and luckily they have us as fathers who are going to, you know, sit down, strategize and, and talk straight with them. So uh, I'm happy to share that with you. But what's, what's interesting right now, when you, when you cite the largest real estate network in the, in, in the country, it, it was an absolute profound privilege to be holding that post, you know, as a, as a co-owner of a business that was really grown by Don R. Campbell, who really became, at, the, at one particular po uh, point, the Canada's most foremost financial commentators in all real estate investment matters, um, highly published, highly regarded. But, but, but here's, here's what I saw what was wrong with the approach, is they built a traditional model of understanding where real estate was going, and it was based on some what they'd called economic fundamentals, which remains true to this day. I mean, hey, if you want to understand where real estate's going, just find where the jobs are growing. You want to know where real estate's going, find where the jobs are going. And once you find where the jobs are going, you know that there's going to be a GDP phenomenon where there's going to be a lot of industrious growth. Makes a lot of sense. But, but, but what, they, what they skipped was during my tenure, um, being from Toronto, but being a West Coast-based business, they thought that because of all the growth was in the oil sands and all the growth was in energy and oil and gas uh, markets and all the growth was in really Alberta and West Coast, it's like, well, Toronto's got a major boom going on. And we call that immigration. And, and I remember my colleagues would say at that time, well, that, that's, that's just not a sustainable industrial phenomenon. I mean, how do they sustain that? And look at it today. I mean, back when I was the president of that particular network, we saw, and we were joking about this, and it's hilarious, but at that time, brother, we saw real estate, pre-construction units. My dear friend Hunter Milborn, one of the biggest, tremendous developers and, and, and advisors to big uh, builders here in Toronto, I saw real estate at $400 per square foot. And, and what is real estate going for now on pre-construction condos, John? <laughs> we just had this conversation. How much? Uh, up to 2000 a square foot. In Folks, $2,000 per square feet. That's within 10 years. So you got to ask the question, did, 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 we, did we discover uh, an energy plot? Did, did, do we have some oil or gas reserve here that I'm not aware of? Are, are we manufacturing something at an exponential rate? No, it's immigration. We had a million people coming to the city in the past two years. One million. So with a new mandate from the government to bring in over 500,000 people per year for the foreseeable future to fortify our taxation base, you've got to understand the business Canada is in is in the taxation business. I don't know about you, man, but I, f I feel like every time we cross the border, come back in our country, they don't ask, uh, how are you? How was your trip? You know, did you have a safe time? What did you buy? What did you buy? What can we tax? What have you got that we need to tax? That's all they want to know. And as long as you got nothing to tax, they don't want to be bothered with you because all we are is a taxable item. That's all we are. And that's fine. I have zero to say about government policy. That's a different show. So, so from that perspective, to answer your question is to understand, well, what is the future? What's the predictable, almost certain future of Canada? And Canada has to, by design, grow. It has to. And the only way for us to, in fact, uh, be uh, uh, of an impact there is to bring in more people. And to bring in more people, they're up to live somewhere. So what you're probably leaning towards is like, oh, then that must mean that real estate will go up. It depends. It depends on where the jobs will be, how close people must remain to places of work and employment, and how the economy behaves. So, um, you know, is real estate going to go up indefinitely? In, in Absolutely. I think, I think real estate, as we've already seen, historically does go up. Um, more importantly, though, like what should you do about real estate now? It all depends on what your motivations are. It, we all need to live somewhere. 
But but I'll tell you, man, I mean, there's something to be said about a lot of other financial commentators like you and I who've been leaning towards talking about the importance of renting rather than buying. And you know who's saying that mostly? Our friends in America, because they haven't seen the growth curve like we have in Canada. You know, America's not bringing in a million new people every year, at least not legally, right? They, they're not bringing in those, but that's not their mandate. Their mandate is to close those borders and to stop the influx of, of, of population growth, especially uncontrollably. But what we're talking about in Canada is they're manufacturing economic strength and, and people are people are the source of that. I find for young people to get into the real estate market today, it's very difficult for them to come up with 20%. I mean, the average home is $1.2 million. How does someone come up with $240,000 down payment to get into the market? So I find that the, the pre-construction is kind of uh, the way to go today, but there's so much, there's so much pre-construction that is going on. There's, there's a ton of projects and you don't even know where to put your money in. But I, what I love about pre, pre-construction is that they're getting in at a price today and they've got sometimes two years to spread out their deposit and in the meantime, the value of that real estate is continuing to go. So uh, I think that if someone wants to get into real estate, we talked about renting versus owning. Um, you know, I, 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 go, I agree with the advice of our friend, uh, Grant Cardone, where he says, unless you're a millionaire, you don't even need to own a place because basically you're paying for a place to sleep. Right. And I've, uh, there's a, another advisor, Ramit Sethi. He lives in he lives in, uh, in 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 California. Sorry, New York. He's like I don't I don't own I rent. But when you rent, it's like taboo. When you're going, you're talking to someone. You know, you're you're this wealthy person. It's like I rent, and they're like, what? What you rent? Oh my gosh! It's like did I just say something wrong? It's like no, you're going against the the mentality of what people think is the American dream. You have to own. No, you don't have to own because owning comes with a whole lot of expenses. Right? I mean, I have a great life. I don't own. I rent. I learned this when I went through my divorce, when I watched all my money from the sale of my home have to go to the lawyers. And I said, this is ridiculous. And then to get back into the market again, and I started renting, and I, I felt ashamed that I had to rent. And I said, you know what? This ain't so bad. I've got one expense. I have a rent. I don't have to worry about fixing the dishwasher. I don't have to worry about the air conditioning. But what it did allow me to do, instead of taking a massive down payment, if I had to go and buy my home today, the home that I live in today that I sleep in is $2.3 million. But if I had to buy that home today, I'm going to take 20% of that money and I put $460,000 into something that's going to be dead equity. I could take that $460,000 and I could buy four pre-construction properties that are all going to go up in value over time. And I've got a couple of years to pay that off. What would your advice be for someone that really wants to enter into the real estate market today? Do it. Next, Next question. question. <laughs> I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, I, I might be dating myself, but you remember those days where uh, you'd get the consumer digest and uh, it was a catalog for those who don't follow this story. And in there was all kinds of goodies. You know, there, there, there'd be furniture and electronics and, and stuff and gizmos. And there was a section I always loved as a kid, which was watches. 
And I just grew up loving watches. I mean, they'd have the calculator watch and a Pac-Man watch, and there would be all kinds of really cool watches. Casio, of course, Timex, to name a few. And I remember growing up and couldn't wait to buy my first watch. So now here I am, a father, and I'd say to my son, I'll take this watch as an example. I, as I pull it off and I hand it over to you, I said, son, as a proud dad, we know one day you're going to own this watch. And I hand it over to him like this, and he takes it. And he's like, dad, cool gesture, but I'm going to sell it. I go, what do you mean you're going to sell it? He goes, dad, if I need to know the time, I got it right here. I mean, that's the point. The point is that, is that times have changed where... I think we are rewriting our source of origination. I mean, sure, my parents worked really hard. All they wanted to make sure and they prayed I would end up in school with a great job and the ability to provide for myself and others. That's all they wished for. I'm sure yours were the same. And I'm sure anyone listening to this was the same. And, and you know what? Their parents, our grandparents, that's what they did for our parents the sacrifice it took, the courage they had, the bravery to cross great mountains, great valleys, cross waters, to be in a place of opportunity to afford our parents the opportunity that they were afforded that gave us rise to life. And you can go back in your own heritage to realize that it's all been just about preserving the sanctity of safety. But with so much safety among us, right, we're not going starving. We're not going to go and struggle. We're not really trying to survive and get by. We all do quite well. We're in a room here with pretty good looking people, right? I would say, okay, maybe not all of us, but I'm just totally kidding. Um, the, the reality is that we're rewriting our relationship to what it means to succeed. Who said homeownership was a symbol of having made it? Who, who said you needed to own a nice watch to know the time? I mean, so all the fixtures and symbolism of financial success is being rewritten. I believe in owning real estate mm -hmm. and owning real estate that produces cash flow. There you go. Okay. Not necessarily owning where you sleep. Mm. Okay. Because your home doesn't pay a cash flow. Even if you have zero mortgage on your home, it's still a liability. Correct. Completely. Right. I'm a big fan and I own several properties. I'm a big fan of owning investment properties that produce cash flow, not necessarily have an own where you sleep. Because if I were to own the home that I rent in or live in right now, my expenses would be about $11,000 a month with, mm. with the rise in interest rates, my mortgage payment, my property taxes, and my general maintenance fee, uh, maintenance on the house. I'd be paying 11 grand a month. I pay 4,000 bucks. I've got an extra $7,000 of disposable income that I could use to put elsewhere that's going to produce a monthly cash flow. So you're absolutely right where people are so stuck on home ownership. Well, instead of focusing on home ownership, why don't you focus on real estate ownership? So, so and just to riff off that, just make sure that we put a real good marker in this film and you hit the nail on the head, bro. That's why I'm so proud of you and I'm so happy for you. You got me in your corner just champing you on. Is, is I think there's a shift from financial identity to financial income. And if we move away from what it means to look successful and to feel successful and to feel like you've arrived and you've got all this wonderful splendor that I can't wait for people and mom and dad and brothers and sisters to see me, look at me. When we move away from that existential philosophical relationship to money and just realize money is just a means to math, crush it, put it to work. And, as, and the more it works, the better you'll be. 
And I think we're at that, that juxtaposition right now. We're now making that great, we're crossing that chasm where now we're letting go with like, you know what, I'm cool with you renting out. In fact, I got a lot more respect for you when I heard that. Good for you, John. That's a smart thing to have done. We were talking about club ownership and, you know, me belonging to a club and you belonging to a club. And, you know, you had an experience of a bill that came in. I said, well, the way I see that, that's like an extension of my office. It's, it's just framing it right. But the only way to reframe the game is to talk to someone who's playing the right one. The only way to reframe the game is to talk to someone who's playing the right one. Otherwise, if you keep talking to people who are playing a game and they're winning the game that you don't want to even play, let alone win at, then what you got to complain for? If you're complaining that you've got all these trophies for a game that you are playing and you don't even want to be on the field to play for, stop playing the game and start talking to people who are disrupting the conversation, challenging your views, changing your perspective, and therefore changing the game. You know, exactly. And to riff off of what you just said, I always talk about money is a game and you got to know how to play. And if you don't understand the rules of a game, you're not going to win at it. You often talk about life as a game. Mm. Can you elaborate more on what you mean about life being a game? I got to be really honest. I've never said this out loud, so I'm happy to just just, just divulge this now on your show. But um, I was first inspired by LeBron James's true passion for creating platform out of his sport. You know, having seen him, worked with him, collaborated with him for as long as I have, and been a fan of his for a, a much longer, I, I appreciate that when he created platforms like More Than An Athlete, where he knew that as a sports figure, you, you're more than just an athlete. You're more than just that figure. Use it as a platform. He, he even launched a, a, a fashion line that was the sport of fashion. And it just resonated with me. And when I asked some of the people in his camp, hey, what did the sport of fashion really mean? And it's like, well, fashion's like a game. And you're either winning it or you're losing it. And that was it. That's all the philosophy was. And so that was my source of inspiration. I've never shared that out loud, but I have now. Where I, as Richard, I have a brand called Rich. And therefore, rich meaning, and it's an acronym for realizing I create happiness. Mm. Realizing I create happiness. And, and knowing that, then that's a game that I'm willing to play is helping people create happiness for themselves. So the sport of rich was the way in which I leveraged my own influence in a world that I'm quite inspired by to say that, well, you can play a game for fun or you can play with it like a sport. And if you play in it like a sport, then the only intention is to play to win. There, there is no, there is no play the sport, and if you win, that's a happy coincidence. So if you understand that context is decisive, and if you're not playing to win, then you shouldn't be playing at all. You shouldn't get a participant ribbon. That's, that's right. right. That's, that's right. right. I mean, we all, I'm sure we've gone through the psychology of <laughs> yes. of, 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 of 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 how we've really candy-coated children's participation that just showing up is worth a ribbon. It's like, no, showing up is like, you know, there's the, there's the pat on the back, now get to work. Um, because I don't know about you, I've never gone to a job ever in my life where I just showed up and got paid. You got to do something. You know, you got to pull handles, you got to push knobs, you got to do something. So I, I think for, for, this, for the whole idea that life is a game, life is a game really came from Werner Earhart's lectures. Uh, life is a game was that uh, when you look at the purpose of life and people go out there in life and they're looking for uh, the cause for why they're here and the gifts and how they should apply it or the way their skills were learned and where they should really apply them and how they should get really excited and get turned on about tomorrow, when at the end of the day, the purpose of life is just to feel alive. So what ends up happening is if the purpose of life is simply to be alive and to experience aliveness, 
then all you've got to do is keep removing what's between you and the experience of aliveness out of the way. Bad relationship, you know, a really bad uh, job or perhaps, you know, a bad bunch of friends or just, you know, silly books or waste of time or too much social media. Whatever's between you and feeling alive is all the purpose should be because life is a game and the purpose of the game is to be alive. So when you take all of that thinking and you put it together, there's something to be said about us becoming great, dare I say, money motivators, you know, shifting people's relationship with money, wealth, and worth, or as you call it, money, health, and real estate, and understanding that those are just dimensions of the game that one can play that you're very much an expert in helping move the needle for them on. So um, I, I, love, I love this era that we're in right now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's clear territory, and uh, there's only but a difference to be made. In your book, Wealth Mastery, you discuss six essential shifts to create financial destiny. Can you highlight what some of these essential shifts are? I'll highlight the most important one because most people don't really start with it and it's really an intention. You know, it's kind of like, and you get this because you're a real estate guy and those who are listening to us right now, they might be even real estate investors or enthusiastic about getting in real estate. But let's imagine all of us, if we want to build a house, if you're going to build a house, the very first question you've got to ask yourself is why, right? What's the purpose of this house? So let's just suppose, you know, knowing you very well, John, you're, uh, you're quite the entertainer. You've got lots of friends. I'm happy to call myself one. Uh, and you do a lot of really great uh, wine drinking and cigar smoking, and you're just that kind of guy. So the intention of your home, should you build it in this metaphorical conversation, is there's going to be a real large entertainment area that would likely have a cigar lounge and a sizable kitchen and a facility that would entertain probably a good dozen or two people. Would that make sense? Absolutely. Okay, great. So, so the intention of the design would be to entertain people. So the intention gives rise to the design. So what's gonna give your blueprint life is the intention for why you're building this. Again, back to our financial conversations, lots of people in fact think about retirement, but so many years ahead of time, I don't know what retirement will look like. Statistically, we know 82% of people who thought they're gonna retire right now still work, and you wanna know why? Most of them do, because they can't afford to retire. But the second most important reason why they continue to work is because they want to. People didn't think they were gonna retire at 70. I still can, I can still work, I enjoy it, I love doing what I do, and so they continue. So it's no longer retirement, it's um, refirement. It, they're refiring, not retiring. And, and that's what's messing up a lot of the economic predictions that were made 15, 20 years ago. And you're an actuary, you understand this by design, given your insurance background. So with all that being said, back to this home analogy, is if you're building a ho home for the sake of having a lot of entertainment, you're, you're gonna make sure you build right to entertain. Now, if the home is 5,000 square feet, you're not gonna have a 4,000 square foot kitchen. That's overbuilding it, right? Um, I wouldn't put that past you, but let's say you did. Um, there's a lot of eating to be had in there. But, but, but all kidding aside, that intention gives rise to the design and that design gives rise to the environment. So when you have an environment that's very conducive to the intention, you're always fulfilling the intention because you can't walk into your house and have this beautiful home with this great kitchen and this awesome cigar lounge and you're not using it. You'd be like, I gotta invite someone over. I gotta get someone in that little cigar lounge and we gotta get, we gotta fire up some, some sticks. So all of a sudden the environment supports the intention. So in the six essential shifts of wealth mastery, what I had done was I'd studied thousands of very wealthy people, but wealthy by my definition, which was wealthy in the things that mattered. So it wasn't wealth like they had a lot of stuff, right? 
I mean, I, I met a lot of people who climbed a mountain their entire life and ended up, John, incredibly wealthy. And they get there and like, I've done it. Look at me. And they look around and they're like, now what? Now what? And the worst question they asked themselves was for what? They were alone, brokenhearted. Kids weren't talking to them anymore. Lost their partners, broken families. And so the question of understanding what's driving you to create more, the question is more of what and for what purpose? What's the intention? What's your financial intention? So in those six essential shifts, and that book um, dates back. I mean, when I was touring with Tony Robbins, I wrote that book as, as a move to be able to tour that book with him. And it was the one thing he talked about, but very little, because he had a program called Wealth Mastery. And, and so I was very inspired by my work with him in, in, that, in that space. But um, I enjoyed that work because it got people really understanding that you can either have a financial life by design or you can have a financial life by default. And it's guys like you, John, that are helping people understand that it's never too late to redesign your relationship in life financially. Never too late. And you're a testament to that. I applaud you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm a big believer in living life intentionally and living it by design. A lot of people have this mindset barrier of they don't know where to start. Where do you think that someone is trying to enter into even saving, getting out of debt, wanting to put away for the retirement? Where should people start? I think what's interesting about the cycle of life is that we, we go with it as, a, as an ebb and flow. But as, as the great Warren Buffett once said, it's, it's only when uh, you've been swimming naked, you'll notice uh, when the tide is out and is most wrong. Um, you know, said a different way. And so actually I'm going to cut that for a second because I completely messed it up. He said that it's only when the tide is out, you'll notice who's been swimming naked. That's the right way to quote the great Warren Buffett. I've only messed that up twice and it's actually with you just now. So <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, and wrongfully I did it to the, the first time with my great mentor, Richard Charlton, who really quickly uh, corrected me. But, 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 but to say that quote is to uh, point out the fact that it, again, it's never too late, but we do really do mask our financial lives with so much fluff. Like just because we might have this and have that, maybe because we dress like this or dress like that, it means that we're successful or there. You've got to really shift your relationship to what it means to be financially successful. And, and I think that financial success is that the, the moment you stop working and, and or need to, that's when you know what you're financially made of. Because quite frankly, as you're the source of your financial income and therefore security, the moment you stop working, what's working? That's why real estate's so important or income generating businesses are important. Cash flow is important. Multiple revenue streams are important. That's why those are all important because you don't have to work to make that work. So the first thing of probably five steps of what I call uh, creating or recreating financial confidence comes down to just having attention. Start noticing where you might be financially out and or out of alignment. Once you are able to create an awareness, it's kind of like shopping for a brand new white car uh, of one, one particular model or another, and all of a sudden you're starting to drive and you're like, wow, that's, that, there's, a, there's, a, there's a white model and there's another white model. You start seeing the same car. It's because you have an awareness. You, your attention is now put on that thing. It's amazing how your reticular activating system works. The, the function of how our brains zero in on something. Our brains are functioning in such a way that it has to cut through clutter because we 
have so much coming at us. So the reticular activating system is, is, is such a thing, and it comes from the book of cybernetics that allows you to cut through and just see the thing you need to see. So sometimes, as, as Tony Robbins would say, is the life you live is not your own. That's what he would say. Your, the life you live is not your own, say I. That's what he would say. And it's, it's the life you're giving attention to. So the things you're giving attention to, that's your life. So if you want a great financial life, start noticing where it's not great. And don't focus on it, notice it. Then you bring it into alignment by acknowledging it. Awareness is one thing. Like I just noticed that these two cups are lined up. That's an awareness. But if I have an acknowledgement that perhaps I have a commitment to being neat, I might say, I might say now, okay, well now, now I'm organized. So I'm acknowledging it by taking action. So acknowledgement is awareness in action. So as a result of doing that, I'm now moving towards actually realizing a net result of actually seeing that which I'm aware of. Of course, then the third is to now accept. That's a big step most people skip. They, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many times I've grudgingly gone through a financial life with grievances, upset, and quite frankly, resentment, even jealousy for friends, for family, for partners who did right and I did wrong. They went right and I went left and that was wrong. They went up, I went down, and that was bad, and on and on it goes. So, so being able to truly accept everything I am financially and everything I'm not gives me the freedom now recreate, reimagine, repurpose, just reinvent. Um, and last but not least is action. You know, and that that takes alignment to get to the kind of advice givers that are out there like you, uh, as an example, to say, hey, what do I need to do now to set course given what I'm aware of. Yeah, what I'm acknowledging, what I accept, and what I'm willing to take action with. I noticed that a lot of people base their financial decisions on past behaviors and what they grew up knowing. So if, if they had two parents that all they did was spend, 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 then their only behavior pattern is based on what they known and they're going to spend, spend, spend. How does someone break out of that pattern? You know, I have to just first acknowledge you for something because it is, it is very rare that someone gets that diabolical about what drives people's behaviors, attitudes, and therefore actions with something. Good for you. Uh, very rare. And, and, and I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but, but for those who are listening, my background is behavioral finance, happiness economics, and investor resilience. My first book was co-authored with a man by the name of Dr. Paul Stoltz, Harvard professor, taught me much of what I know around human resilience and investor resilience. I, I, I owe a great deal to him uh, and his team and Dr. Jeff Thompson, his partner, uh, and Dr. Rhonda uh, Beeman, his, his wife. But, but, but what I'll say is what I learned out of studying our relationship to money and especially behaviorally is as Martin Heddegger, the great philosopher once wrote, is that it all starts with the world in which we were born into and had no say in. He calls that the state of throneness. And the state of throneness defined is the world in which you were thrown into. Uh, you were born with those ears, those lips, that skin color. I mean, I was born with this skin color and this hair and these bone structures. We were all born in this room with a certain disposition that we had no say in. I mean, we have people that are being born in a place called the Ukraine right now as a war rages on. Uh, they had no say in being born into a state of war. So the, the way in which we were brought in, the, the state of throneness is defined by three things. The parents you've got, 
yeah, the parents, the parents you've got, the conversations they have, and the beliefs they embody. So we become a byproduct of those three converging factors. So you're right. But we shift. As we grow, we go and we get to school and we learn things. We have friends, they influence stuff. We watch TV and that influences things and on it goes. So, but our state of thrownness is always going to be what I've come to call the original template. Yeah, the original template. So when, when we are lost, when we feel like we've deviated, when we don't feel like quite ourselves, we will always return to a default position, which is our origination state. So the way to disrupt that is to constantly grow by way of making commitments that are likely going to be uncomfortable. Because remember, I talked a bit about the brain, the thing it perfected over 3 million years, the act of survival. The minute it feels like you're doing something different, it will kick you back into your original state. And this is a huge, huge icebreaker for us because if you're going to do something that interrupts a way of thinking, being, and or physiologically existing, and it feels counterintuitive, it's probably good for you. It's probably good for you, but it's going to be uncomfortable. So as you start to stretch, you'll start to panic. And when you start to panic, you'll want to return to your default position. I bet when you're renting that place for the first few weeks, if not months, and maybe month after month after cutting those checks, you're like, I really don't know if I should be here. You're Italian. It's probably, it was probably going against every single part of your existence. Home ownership was, you had to own a home. But how much does, did your blood boil and your DNA brim? Often, I bet. Oh, yeah, because this was, this was something, I mean, I've owned, God, since I was in my early 30s. And now I'm like, that. oh, my God, now I'm renting. This is taboo. Like, Hold this on. Is Look at me. But I bet you you still wrestle with it even very little, even still yet, because it's just in your DNA. It's what you're known is what, all you know. Yeah. Do you have a tomato plant in the back yet, though? No. <laughs> I'm not that so Italian. Italian. I'm not Italian, that Italian. <laughs> so, so all kidding aside, I mean, the, the reality is that we're going to have to fight that. So you, you've got to sit down with someone who's really going to be a, a massive financial thinking disruptor for you that says, first, let's find out how your parents were. Remember at lunch, we were talking about the financial planner that said, hey, if you want to invest with me, here's my PFA, the personal financial analysis, guys. I know I'm totally boring everybody here, but stay with me here. And, it, and it's going to tell me everything about you who you are, what you've got, what you own, what you owe, which gives you just a net worth statement. I'm thinking to myself, let's, let's talk about my lineage because that's what's messing me up. Don't worry about what I'm worth. Let's worry about where I came from because that shit's going to show up and it's going to have me call you and say, listen, the markets are now down by 2%. I think I got to sell all the stuff that you got me into because I can't stand this any longer and click, right? So for, for people, they have to first start with finding someone who's going to hold your hand and see it through right? Cross that chasm, stay with you through those darkest moments and make sure that the behaviors and attitudes and the discipline it's going to take to stay true to a new type of financial personality that you need to be to realize the financial intention that you've got for yourself becomes true. I think that's where people got to start. It's going to come with, uh, as we said at lunch today, that that person who's not just a relationship manager, they're going to be, they're really going to be your financial mentor. They're going to be the person who's going to coach you through and advise you into the kind of behaviors, thinking, ideology you've got to keep, keep, keep there for yourself through thick or thin. Tell us about your latest book, Richer. Richer was a cool book. It came out of, uh, it came out of the pandemic when, when what I found myself doing was really continuing my research on just what wealthy folks were doing. Mm -hmm. And I was astonished that between family offices, endowment funds, where a lot of monies were beginning to transition, um, I was shocked, John, I was, I was shocked to see that there was a pleasant shift in the views of these monies. 
where the term impact kept showing up. You know, I sit here today as, a, as an advisor to Kwaku Mandela, who runs the House of Mandela, the late Nelson Mandela, that's his grandson. Um, you know, the House of Marley, Bob Marley's uh, foundation. Um, I mean, I'm an advisor to the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, and a number of other people who were up to some really good things in the world. And they're all what I've come to call instruments for impact. These are people who are looking at socioeconomic, globally responsible, um, lifelong, lasting change. They want to slow down climate heating. They want to, they want to, you know, they want to annihilate poverty. They, they want to, you know, they want to rescue children. They want to educate those who have no access to that. And, and so what I was delighted to see that the term richer, maybe for me 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier meant more, meant more stuff. But in fact, it wasn't stuff. The shift turned to be more significance to be able to create uh, what I've come to call uh, a great departure from net worth, having more net worth, to having more life worth. And, and life worth by definition is uh, the value you give to and get from life. Huh? The, the, the value you give to and get from life. And so when you think about all these dollars that are about to shift hands, 60 trillion uh, in America, uh, well over 4 trillion here in Canada, uh, and over 112 trillion worldwide, this money, this intergenerational wealth transference, which needs to be multi-generational, it's not ours, it's theirs. Um, a lot of the thinking is how does this make an impact too? How do we save the planet? H how do we restore mother nature? H how do we give back? How do we run a portfolio with purpose? How do we make a difference and a dollar? Yeah. And so, and so for me in, in richer, it was really just the reclamation and, and the restoration of my views and values of what I've been watching a lot of the wealthy were doing. So uh, it's a wonderful piece. It gave rise to another book that's coming out shortly on legacy, uh, more on that another time, but just understanding that this conversation we're having is, is, a, is a real baseline to that thinking. You talked about what the wealthy do. Mm. You surround yourself, and I, I, I see you're, you, you are surrounded by a lot of high net worth people and celebrities. What are the wealthy people doing as opposed to what um, the middle class are doing? Because I always say, you know, 97% of the people want to live like the top 3%, but they're not willing to do what those 3% are doing because they're getting advice from the people that are at their level or even lower. So what are some of these wealthy people doing to create more generational wealth? I know they're not investing in mutual funds. You know, what, one of the things I would say by way of an observation is, is I do notice that those who are celebrities, what I've come to call icons, titans, and legends of, of commerce and culture. I mean, I still advise athletes and musicians, actors, actresses, producers, politicians, dignitaries, even members of the royal family as cited earlier. And I notice that they don't live their wealth. So they don't wear it. I mean, gosh, just last night, as I shared with you, I had an opportunity to spend some time with Keanu Reeves, who uh, was in our city, um, and he was actually performing with his two best pals. He's been friends with these guys for 30 years, and they have a band called Dogstar, and uh, they've got a new album that I think just came out today, actually, ironically, the day that we're filming this, actually, their new album just came out today. And in spending time with, with Keanu, I was far more intrigued by observing him and listening to his language and disposition. And for those who don't know, 
Keanu Reeves. I mean, first of all, he's a Canadian. So he's a Canadian brother, just like ours, of ours. And um, I mean, you know, Dude, Where's My Car? And, you know, uh, I mean, all kinds of other Matrix. wonderful movies like Matrix and John Wick, of John course. John Wick, favorites. But to see him in person and watch his disposition was incredible. Um, there's no sign of wealth. There's no wealth in his language. There's no wealth even in his disposition. There's nothing that would tell you that this guy's made tens of millions of dollars and has been a part of film franchises that have grossed billions of dollars. There wouldn't be a single sign of that. So you can look him up and find out that he donated his earnings from Matrix 4 to uh, this charity. You'd find out that he gifted Rolexes to the cast of that production, that he would give away this, he would take public transit. Uh, I mean, there's so many great stories about what tells you he's grounded, but by observing him that day and night, I was shocked at how consistently true that was. So I feel like the wealthy today, and there's a real line of demarcation between those who have something and must still prove it, and then there's those who have everything and have nothing left to prove. I read an article, Christian Bale is worth like $120 million and drives a 2004 Tacoma still. Yeah. And he's I mean, worth there's, $120 million. There's, there's no shortage of it. And, and that's not to say that money is evil. And it's not to say that it's bad to have nice stuff. I mean, I drive a nice car. You drive a nice car. I mean, it's, it's nice to have nice things. What, what it's meant to do is to give you a sense of perspective, of putting back into focus what really matters most to you. So I, I call that the real deal. You know, when you really understand what really matters most to you and what are your non-negotiables, you'll start to realize that if you're only able to serve a handful of motivations, values, when it comes to your financial life, what, what does it really come down to? Like I can almost guess what yours might be. I mean, at the top of the list would likely be your wife, your, your son, um, followed by your own health and followed by your family, and then, and then probably followed by your aspirations of helping many people. Um, and then probably your golf game, because that's just how that golf game works right now, I've heard. But, but all kidding aside, I mean, that probably would capture you, yeah? Absolutely. But it's different if I did that to you 25 years ago, because your son wasn't blessed to be here yet, and your life was a bit different, and so, so we change. I think what people need to understand is that our financial game changes because the game of life does too. The older we get, the landscape changes. Things matter differently. So, you know, just keep revisiting with yourself, no matter what the decision was that you made for your financial lives 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's never too late to reinvent your relationship to it right now. Live below your means. 100%. Live below your means, pay yourself first, and invest in yourself. 1,000%. Yeah. Rich, 1,000%. this has been awesome. We've run out of time. I'm so I'm so glad to call you my friend. I'm grateful. And, and thank you so much for being here. This was really awesome. Um, if you guys want to, how, how can people follow you? How can people get a hold of you? Or, or what's your Instagram? Listen, it's, you know, look me up, Richard Dolan. Uh, don't get shocked when you find out there's also a Richard Dolan, the world's greatest UFO expert. Uh, we have no relationship. I saw that. And a YouTuber. So cool. yeah. My mother called me once. She goes, I never knew. I said, never knew what, Ma? She goes, I never knew you were a UFO guy. I go, that's the wrong guy. That's not me. But uh, richarddolan.com is, is quite easy. You can go to Richard Dolan, uh, Instagram, all, all my handles. But uh, delightful to get related to your audience through your show. It's been an honor to be here, but congratulations. Listen, man, uh, it's no easy feat to launch podcasts. I mean, this is a courageous act, both commercially and professionally. 
Uh, so I want to thank you on behalf of your audience and thank you in advance for all the work you're going to put in because they expect you to put in the work. Thank you. Because they are counting on you to be the gravity in their financial future. So do not let them down, my friend. Thank you. Continue, and and continue. you've got your own podcast, The Courageous Conversation. The Courageous Conversation. I always find out from my clients, what are they doing that's most courageous in their lives? And that's always fun to find out. Yeah, I've listened to it. And you had some really great, uh, some great speakers on there. I appreciate that, man. We got to get you on there now next. I would be more than happy to. It's going to be a courageous conversation. <laughs> It'd be a very courageous conversation. <laughs> Congratulations, John. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all for today. Take care of yourself and take care of your wealth.